Well, good morning. I am excited that we are here today to worship our Heavenly Father, to celebrate in community, and to find ourselves being equipped for God's mission in the world. For the past three weeks of the Lent season, we have been in our temptations of... I'm sorry, is it really snowing again? For the past three weeks, I've been in temptation to move to somewhere warmer, right? For the past three weeks, we have been in this Temptations of Jesus series, our Lent series, which has been reflecting on Jesus' 40 days in the desert. This time in which Jesus entered the desert to endure the temptations of the devil, to encounter the Father's presence, to experience the human condition, to be equipped for his ministry to excel with authority over the devil, and to encourage us to live with the same victorious way. So that we can overcome the temptations as we looked at them, of appetite, our need for affirmation, and so that we can overcome our selfish ambition. Now, video and audio archives of those series are available on our website, and this allows us to continue to process what God is doing in us through that series. It allows us to share it with those who we know might uh, take something away from it, and it also serves to be almost like a second online campus for us, if you will. Just think, our church of 117, just since June of last year, not even a full year yet, has had over 8,000 listens online a way for us as a church to also have a kingdom impact. Now in Lent, we started to look at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, how he goes into the desert. And this morning, we begin to contemplate on the ending of his earthly ministry, the days and the journey leading up to his sacrificial and redemptive work and death on the cross. And this morning we start a journey that throughout church history has often been referred to as Holy Week. And Holy Week is considered to be part of the liturgical calendar of Lent and is the nickname for the week that leads up to Easter. This is an annual time that many church traditions take to contemplate on this sacrificial and redemptive journey of Jesus to the cross. Now, in many ways, Matthew, one of the initial 12 followers of Jesus, gives us more unique details into Jesus' journey to the cross than any other follower of Jesus does. Holy Week begins today with the celebration of what we call Palm Sunday. It is a time to reflect on the power, this powerful moment in history. It is a moment in which Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem and is literally met with the embrace of, of an excited and rioting city that is screaming, save us. Now let me tell you a story here for just a minute. In 1990, there was a musical awards ceremony for the French-speaking Canadian provinces. And in that ceremony, the hosts are on the stage, and this audience is full to the max in this arena, and they begin to announce the top award of that event, the Artist of the Year. Ah, And this crowd's going crazy, and they rip off the envelope, ah, and, and they pull it out, and the hosts say, and the winner 
of the artist of the year is Celine Dion. And the crowd goes crazy. Now, Celine Dion was a French-speaking singer and songwriter at this point. The crowd roared with delight at the saying of her name. You see, that year, Celine Dion had released an English-speaking album. An album called, uh, I actually forget what it was called. An album called Unison. And to date, that album, her first album in English, sold seven times platinum. Now, to go platinum, you have to sell a million records. She went seven times platinum with that album. And she's just been nominated for this award in Canada because she made it in the English market. So she stands up and she begins to approach the stage and the crowd is roaring and clapping. When I say roaring, they're Canadian and they're, they're French, so they're kind of reserved in a way they roar. It wasn't like an American uh, roaring, but for French Canadians, they're really roaring. And Canada television is tuned into this live event. Almost all of Canada is watching Music is pumping as she makes her way to the stage. She can barely bring her head up to look at the stage. And all eyes are on her as she gets to the stage and begins to enter it. A gentleman holding the trophy comes to her and she politely just waves him off. She keeps her head down and she walks up to the host. She hugs them with tears in her eyes. She takes to the podium. She said, I cannot accept this award. Her tentative audience was confused. And so they thought she was being humble, and they began to laugh. And then they cheered more for her. She goes on to say that she cannot accept this award because they are not rewarding her for being a Canadian, which this award was for. They're rewarding her because she was affirmed by a market that was seen as better as their own. She cannot affirm her, they cannot affirm her identity as a Quebecian. She cannot accept it because it's a way that they're affirming they made it someone else's market, a market that was seen as better. Her humbleness just ended up leading to more cheering and roaring for the next minute or two where she sat looking at the crowd with the face that you see here. Solemn. She realized that she stood there, that her fans were trying to affirm her for something that she didn't want affirmed in. In this passage that we're going to look at this morning, we see that Jesus too enters to this roar of a crowd like Celine Dion. However, the fans of Celine, just like the fans of Celine, uh, Jesus' fans had missed everything that he stood for. They wanted him to take the award that they were willing to give him, earthly king. But Jesus wasn't there for the applause or for the affirmation. He wasn't there for the approval or the ambition of taking over Jerusalem. He didn't have this hungering appetite to be the earthly king. In fact, he enters the town to the sound of a triumphant fanfare just so he does it as on textbook, as unpredictable, and as humble as possible. So in this story that we're going to read, Jesus comes to the stage of a roaring fan base. And they want to award him with a role that he is not willing to take. And as a result, the onlooking crowd is disturbed and forced to wrestle with, who is this? Now at the core of the story, we're going to see that Matthew, this follower of Jesus, in his narrative of the story, creatively answers this question with the answer, this is salvation. From this point on, 
The crowd that is quick to want to name him king will quickly move to be the crowd that yells condemn and crucify him after this moment. This morning on Palm Sunday, our sermon message is titled, This is Salvation. And we begin to journey into Holy Week by looking at the fanfare around Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem. This exciting story of Jesus entering into the city of Jerusalem is found in Matthew 21, 1 through 11. And as I read this passage, I, fo- I invite you to follow along with your Bible or on a screen overhead. <clears throat> Matthew writes in Matthew 21, 1 through 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus said to disciples, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. Now, if anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did, just as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spreads their cloaks on the road, while others began to cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Now this morning, I think we're reflecting on what is a really powerful story. I want to pause and just back up and retell it in context to begin to look at some of the significance of what we see, what's happening. And we're going to look at just a little what happened before this great and triumphant entry. Right before this magnificent scene into Jerusalem, Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples. In fact, Matthew's narrative says Jesus took the 12 disciples aside, out of the public eye. He took them to his side and he spoke frankly with them on what would soon start to take place. And as he does that, he tells them, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Now Jesus tells them they're headed to the holy city. Jerusalem, and there he's going to be killed. But don't worry, he's going to overcome that too. Now, do you think the disciples heard a word he said? No, because you know what? Matthew says the very next thing, the word he used there then, apparently the very next thing is that Matthew's narrative tells us as soon as Jesus says this, one of the mothers of the 12 disciples, two of the 12 disciples comes to him and says, hey, when you rule, can my son sit on your left hand and your right hand? Uh, Hello, did you just get what I said? I'm going to die. They had appetite for power and prestige. They wanted to be firmed as special and significant. Their ambition 
was around rule and reign. It's then that Matthew says Jesus calls the 12 back together. I think Matthew's implying that he purposely pulled the 12 away from any mothers who were trying to mingle uh, in the situation at the time. And he pulls the 12 back together and he says this, You know, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercised authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, the disciples had allowed their appetites, their need for affirmation, and their selfish ambition to become unchecked, unbalanced, and unhealthy. Jesus tells them to check themselves. Power and prestige, not with you. Rule and reign, not with you. Special and significant, not with you, my followers. You must move past that because I didn't come for that. I came to give my life as a ransom. And your job, your job is to do what I do, to live and love like I do. Get that through your head because now we're going to Jerusalem. And guess what, guys? Don't get distracted by the fanfare. I'm going there to die. It's then that Jesus leaves Jericho, and he begins to head towards Jerusalem. And when they're a little ways away from the city, I think Jesus gets a whiff of what's happening in the city. I think he sees the crowd start to form. I think he sees that there's people beginning to prepare the way for him. And it breaks his heart. Word was searched and reached the town that he's coming, and the crowd literally moves into the streets into riot form. They're ripping down branches and preparing the way as they have done many times before for political leaders. What we don't see in Matthew's narrative that Jesus gets a whiff of this, but we do see it in Luke's, another follower of Jesus. He says, as he, as Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They would dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They would not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming on you. In this passage, we see this heartbreak of Jesus for his city. He's looking at the city from the top of a hill that is his city. It is the holy city, the city that David formed. It is the city that has been called heaven on earth and God's people. Looking at the city, Luke says Jesus wept. The word wept means there he uncontrollably lost it. Jesus cries out, don't you see this was to be the day of peace? You've missed the point, and now you're going to miss out on everything that God is going to do as a result. You miss the fact that God's timing, that thing you've waited your whole life for, is happening. Now, we don't know what the disciples are thinking at this point, but I'm pretty sure that we can imagine that they too are confused, and I'm pretty sure all they could see was this whole city was ready to overthrow anyone and anything at the very command of Jesus. They wanted Jesus with everything they had. Why was Jesus weeping about that? Jerusalem and Jesus' disciples missed the Father's heart. 
for what was about to happen. I wonder how often we, too, kind of live in our own expectations, project them on Jesus, and miss exactly what is on the Father's heart. How Jesus must weep in those moments. So with his heart heavy for the city, Jesus sends some of his followers to a suburban town. He tells them to get this donkey and a colt. And no celebrity or political leader at this time in their right mind would have rode a donkey into a city full of fanfare. No, in this time, leaders, political leaders, rode stallions. They sat high above the people. They rode with pride. Donkeys were a sign of the working class. They, had, they were the tools of the working class. They were a symbol of peace, not political takeover. We might compare it to Jesus driving a beat-up station wagon in the East Petersburg rather than a limousine full of armed guards. Donkeys represented peace. Stallions represented war. Jesus wanted to make sure there was no confusion why he was coming to town. Jesus tells him, grab the donkey you see with the colt. If anyone asks you what you're doing, tell them that the Lord needs them. Now, donkeys, when you train them, the best way to train a donkey, because they're so stubborn, is to keep the colt with it so that it can learn its mother's steps. Jesus is mirroring his relationship with the disciples in that moment. And he's fulfilling a prophecy from a thousand years before. Jesus has never referred to himself prior to this passage as the Lord. But as he tells them, go get the donkey or the colt. If anyone asks you what they're doing, tell them that the Lord needs them. The word for Lord there is interesting because it means the manager. It means the one to whom owns things. Did Jesus steal these things? Some people have guessed. Did Jesus and his disciples really own these disciples? Others have thought. Did Jesus supernaturally manifest these donkeys? We don't know. This is a crazy part, right? Hey, guys, go into the town, this little suburban town, and get this donkey and her mom. If anyone says, like, what are you doing with them? Just tell them the Lord needs them. It's a hard passage to understand. But it doesn't matter. What does matter is that Jesus was choosing a humble creature, to convey his message and fulfill prophecy from hundreds of years prior. So Jesus rides into town, and people begin to meet him upon his entry. And we tend to think of this as the triumphant entry, as if Jesus came in with forces blazing. We tend to paint pictures of this with Jesus smiling and high-fiving kids and grabbing their hands. And that is not wrong, and I'm sure he rejoiced in it some but I don't think that it's necessarily the full story or the most accurate picture either. The crowds were yelling, Hosanna. Hosanna! Son of David, Hosanna! We tend to think of that as a term of praise when we sing it. Hosanna. You know the word Hosanna translated literally means save us. Save us! Save us! That's what they're yelling. In fact... The way that it's written shows that there's some certain immediacy around it. William Barclay suggests that it would be more accurate to translate it as save us now. Save us now. You see, the crowd saw Jesus entering the town on a campaign trail, just as they'd seen countless leaders do before. It's obvious they have his vote. These people aren't wealthy. They don't have tons of extra coats. But as Jesus enters the city, they begin to take off their coat which was common action in the days of Jesus. And we see it also in 2 Kings, when one of Israel's famous kings 
was proclaimed by the people in defiance of the existing one. They take off their coats, the one coat they probably owned, and they throw it into the street. And they say, we surrender all we have to you. Insurrect our king. <coughs> Insurrect. They were showing their sacrificial loyalty. They were calling for insurrection. They began to climb trees and violently cut down palm trees. What a sight! These palm trees would have been shaking. The noise of that would have been deafening. The palms at this time represented nationalism and victory. And waving palm branches was something that they had done countless times before since the days of Maccabees when he came in just 200 years before on that day and conquered the pagan armies that had oppressed Israel. And he brought the people their freedom. He welcomed them home, and the people had nothing left because they were oppressed. And so they had taken the palm trees, and they had thrown them also into the road. They had waved them, and they said, this is all we have, and we give it to you. And for the next 150 years, Maccabees rules the area as a dynasty. They wanted insurrection. They wanted a new dynasty. And if that isn't enough, they are shouting royal chants of the name as he went. They called, Hosanna to the Son of David. Save us, Son of David. Now to welcome Jesus to the Son of David wasn't saying they understood him to be the Messiah. Actually, quite the opposite. They were equaling him to the individual that had made their city a capital. Over a thousand years prior, they had been waiting for a king like David to come again and free them from their oppression. <clears throat> In this, they were calling for a new earthly king. Michael J. Wilkins points out, but Jesus knows, and Matthew has told us that nothing is that simple. We know that he had come to Jerusalem not to be enthroned like David or like Maccabees or like Herod, but to be killed. The meaning Jesus attaches to this so-called triumphal entry is quite different from the meaning they had wanted to see in it. In fact, when Jesus arrives into the town, what's the first thing he does? He ignores the crowd. He walks into the temple. He looks around and he sees that the house of prayer has been turned into something full of trespass. He throws the tables. Disgrace the one thing. And it's from here on that Jesus' popularity begins to decline with an alarming rate. This is a powerful story. I think it's even more powerful when we understand it in its original context. There are many takeaways that we could take notes on, but this morning I want to highlight just a few. And I invite you to flip your bulletins over to the back. You'll see some, some notes there, and I invite you to follow along with me as we look at some of those notes that we can take away from this passage. First, in this story, the disciples exemplify obedience to Jesus. That needs to speak to us. Jesus literally tells them to leave his side, right into the town that is a little far away, and take a donkey. Then in verses 6, listen to what Matthew writes. The disciples went and did as Jesus instructed them. This is a powerful verse that we must not overlook. Obedience to Jesus above everything else is regardless if it makes sense or not. We must model obedience to Jesus regardless if it makes sense or not. 
Secondly, the crowd begins to exalt Jesus as king. As Luke's account tells, Jesus wept for his city, and this could have been the day of their peace. They could have had that thing they wanted, but they missed out on it because of their selfish ambitions and their expectations placed on him. Now, Jesus was king. And in a way, he was insurrecting the powers and the rulers of this world. And he was a Messiah in the lineage of David. However, their expectations blinded them from seeing the full story. They didn't see what kind of king he really was. However, their praise was not wrong. It was just out of wrongful ambition. Take note, because how often do we praise Jesus because of what he can do for us or what he will do for us rather than just because who he is? Third, the crowd realizes Jesus can extend salvation to them. As Jesus comes into the city, people are literally yelling, save us. They realize that he holds the power of salvation. They have seen his miracles. They've seen him speak with authority. At every turn, someone is trying to trap him, and they've watched Jesus get out of that. And there is no one else like that alive. It's obvious to them that he can extend the kind of salvation they want. Sadly, the kind of salvation they wanted was just to see their earthly problems fixed. But the salvation that Jesus was offering was a salvation that reconciled people with God, their creator. Which salvation do you find yourself more concerned with? Are you looking to Jesus for comfort in life? For his justice? Are you looking to him because he offers you eternal life? Are you in love with him? Are you in love with his salvation because he offers restoration with God? However, Jesus expands what they thought would happen. And Jesus is not distracted from his mission. He was tested with a distraction in the desert. He overcame it there, and now he overcomes it here as well. And Jesus will continue to carry out his plan. He will die for the ransom of many, not for the earthly freedom of a few. Listen to this quote from Michael Wickham's. But Jesus was undertaking a different kind of triumphal entry for what many in the crowd expected. Jesus was triumphing over the enemy of sin, bringing salvation to his people through his righteousness sacrifice on the cross that looms ahead. Many in the crowd can only think of physical and military liberation. Soon Jesus will reach his goal and pronounce, it is finished, or now it has happened. Think for a minute, where is Jesus trying to expand what you might think of him? Fifth, in doing so, Jesus confronts their expectations. John Wimber once said, sometimes God offends our minds to reveal what's in our hearts. I love that. Let me say it again. Sometimes God offends our minds to reveal what's in our hearts. By continuing on his plan, Jesus does that very thing with their expectations. John, another follower of Jesus, actually writes it like this. At first, we as disciples didn't understand any of this. Only after Jesus was glorified, meaning after he died and came back, did we understand what these things meant that we had written about. So in other words, we had to go back and offer an edit into our account because we didn't understand what Jesus was doing at all. But now that it's happened, we get it. He offended our minds then, but now that we have seen it, we see what's in the heart. 
I wonder where God might be offending your mind so he can reveal what expectations are misplaced in your heart. Lastly, this story challenges the crowd and us to really examine who Jesus is. I think my favorite part of this story isn't the triumphal entry. It's when uh, Matthew writes, the whole city was stirred. I love that word, stirred. Right? They were disturbed. They were bothered. And they said, who is this? And the crowd answers, this is Jesus. He's a prophet from Nazareth. Who is this? Jesus, they respond. They didn't even stop to realize that the answer was in their, the answer of who Jesus really was, was in his name. When they said Jesus, they ignored the fact that Jesus literally means Jehovah is salvation. Or this is salvation. Who is this? Jesus, this is salvation. They answered themselves but missed it altogether. They didn't take the time to examine what was really happening. And they didn't examine who Jesus was. Now let me ask you this. What is it that you want from Jesus? Do you want his afterlife? Do you want his love for justice? Do you want the way he makes you feel? Do you want to, say, to make the same mistake the crowd make? and fall in love with what he offers more than the fact that he is Jesus, Son of God, Reconciler of God. He is Messiah. They wanted a prophet that knew how to stick it to the man for their own sake. This is why Jesus wept. He tells them that God's judgment will then fall on them, and as a result, they will miss out on it. Who is this? This is salvation. Don't In closing, I think when we read any passage, we have to look at it in two ways. How am I going to be an obedient disciple of this passage? And how am I going to disciple others? And and when we ask ourselves, how are we going to be an obedient disciple of this passage? I think we really have to ask ourselves three questions. What did Jesus say to me in it? What am I going to do about it? And who am I going to reach out to to keep me accountable in growing in this area? This is where the rubber meets the road. Not just hearing a word, but as James says, to also be doers of the word. To respond, actually, to what Jesus is saying in a convicting passage. So what did Jesus say to you? And what are you going to do about it? I think there's four ways to respond as a church as we close. First, this story reminds us to repent. Confess to God of the places that you have put your own expectations on. The places we haven't listened to the Father's heart enough because we've been too in love with our own stuff. Turn yourself back to his heart. The story reminds us that God calls us to live sacrificially with redemption. Jesus invites us to pick up our cross and follow him. He gave his life as a ransom. Where in your life is Jesus asking you to sacrifice, rule, reign, power, significance, superiority? This helps us get out of the way of ourselves so that the gospel message can be proclaimed. The story forces us to also ask, who is Jesus to us? Do we want a Jesus who rides on a donkey and refuses the award they're willing to give him? Or do we want Jesus because it's something he can offer us? Or do we want Jesus because we love him and we want to be reconciled to God? God's people were turned over to their enemies. They missed out on his peace because they missed out on who he was. Don't miss out on yours. Triumphantly, as we close, worship 
Jesus for who he is. Learn to worship Jesus because you love him, because you love the Father, and because you want to worship with your whole heart. And as the worship team comes forward, I invite you to worship Jesus in this last song because he is our salvation. This is salvation because we love him and we want more of him, not more of his stuff. The New Testament tells us to love Jesus more than we love ourselves, more than we love our family, and more than we love our expectations of him. In this closing song, surrender your expectations. When we turn to worship Jesus for who he is and alone, I believe he shows up. So if God is putting something heavy on your heart as we close out and sing Mighty to Save, then I invite you to come forward and I'll be up here for prayer. And I look forward to talking with you as we continue this journey through Holy Week.